0: This. 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 Hello and welcome to Decipher This, a podcast about music and technology from Ensemble Decipher. I'm Eric Lemon.
1: I'm Joy Bohegan.
0: Today we are with Dr. Margaret Shaddell, an interdisciplinary artist, composer, and technologist extraordinaire. She's a professor of music and the chair of the art department at Stony Brook University. In addition, she teaches computer music composition at the Peabody Institute and is a mentor to all of us at Ensemble Decipher. Her career blends classical training in cello and composition, audio data research, and computational arts education, and she serves on the board of Seamus and as a regional editor for the Cambridge University Press Journal Organized Sound. Her music has been recognized internationally and has garnered her the 2019 Pamela Z Innovation Award, as well as commissions from the Princeton Laptop Orchestra, ICTIS, React, and Yarn Wire. Hi, Meg. Welcome, Meg. Hi. So, sonification is a big part of your artistic practice, and for listeners that are not familiar with this form of data display, sonification is the representation of some sort of data type as sound, uh, so what drew you to sonification and what are some of the problems specifically with artistic sonification? Obviously, we're talking to a composer here and not to just someone who's doing data display for kind of practical purposes.
2: I got interested in sonification because those papers were just sort of around at the conferences that I was going to. And I was like, hey, cool, way to do science and music, which is something I've always loved, science, but music really has my heart. Um, And so I was like, oh, this would be a really interesting thing to do. I'm already turning numbers into sound in what I do. So why not change scientific numbers into sound? Um, And I also had very strong, bad, reactions to most of the sounds of the sonifications that I was hearing. And I thought I could do something more aesthetically pleasing. Um, And so that's been my, my sort of hill that I'm going to die on um, (laughs) is talking about the aesthetics of sonification. I edited a whole uh, issue of organized sound on the aesthetics of sonification Because I think a lot of times people are just like, I changed these numbers into sounds and that's what the sound is. But there's so much choice that goes into it. Um, And I think you need to to really listen to the output of your system um, rather than just making theremins out of data.
0: Yeah, so I guess, how have you addressed some of these aesthetic problems, at least in your own artistic practice, or if it's kind of directed towards more of this kind of craft-based application where it's about, you know, uh, making the aesthetics represent um, data in, I don't know, more pleasing way, um, or maybe you don't see those two things as separate.
2: Yeah, for me, the Big issue with the sort of theremin model is um, you're not getting a good representation of the data, and you're not getting a good melody usually. Like, so you're succeeding on you're you're failing on both fronts. And so what I started doing was timbral sonification, and it's a lot harder to explain it in words um, to people because we don't have as large of a vocabulary to describe the color of sounds if you're not a musician. But everyone really does have an inherent understanding of timbre um, if they grew up hearing things. Um, and so, with just a tiny bit of training, a scientist can start really distinguishing sounds based on timbre instead of pitch. Um, another thing that I did um, with the sonification of gait for people with Parkinson's, um, rather than make Sound or quote music out of the data, it wasn't working at all. And I was like, if this is going to be a therapy that somebody's going to want to use every day of their life, I would be so annoyed. Um, and what we did instead was use different kinds of distortion on recorded music. So they could pick mm. the music that they liked, that they were familiar with. And then if there were problems in their gait, it would be reflected by distorting the music. Mm. And so the way that you heard the music clearly was to walk correctly as prescribed by your physical therapist. So it's very individualized. So if you can only take steps that are six inches, great, that's where your steps will be clear in the music. So that was fun.
0: Yeah, that that's really fascinating. My, my grandfather had Parkinson's. Um, and I remember hearing about research, I guess, in college when I was doing psychology courses on kind of gait entrainment um, through sound. But these examples that I read about in the papers were merely just like giving people a pulse to follow along with to help them. But that, that sounds like that'd be much more helpful for uh people with parkinson's in that regard
2: yeah reviewer number two it's always reviewer number two was like um (laughs) how do you know that this isn't just because there's a beat in this music that they're listening to and so we actually did um someone reading uh like an audiobook we had jane austen i (laughs) think we would distort jane austen (laughs) and had similar results (laughs) so
0: wow oh that's fascinating
2: ah reviewer two
0: yeah right (laughs) So, you and I are working on a project together with George Umwat, Litzi Escobar, and Inderjeet Bilku that mobilizes sonification in a COVID 19 mapping and data display tool. Could you share with our listeners a little bit more about this project? Uh, another thing that might be interesting for the listeners to know is how sonification and mapping can help us understand the pandemic.
2: Yeah, so we are creating a customizable tool to let people understand the lived experience of COVID-19 in Suffolk County. And the idea of adding sonification to a map is to allow the user to have more variables displayed, right? So if you think about the Hopkins map that probably everybody's seen with the big red circles, that's about all the information that you're getting is the number of cases and where, and you can sort of scroll through time. But we wanted to talk about the living conditions of people, like are they living in multi-generational households? What is the income level? What are the races of people in these particular counties um, or these hamlets? And we wanted to let people choose which variables they wanted to display um, visually and which sonically. And the sonifications are going to be a mixture of synthesis and also sort of pre-recorded tracks. So we're trying to figure out, like, can you make several recordings that sort of give you a sense of how many people are living in what kind of size house? So maybe there will be something with reverb is the size of the house. And then the number of people um, is somehow like a layer of chatter. And we would actually be able to just turn up the volume on those tracks, depending on the data.
1: Yeah. So I think this can kind of lead us into the next thing that I wanted to ask you about, which is your sound installation rum line. So can you tell us about the frogs? Yes! I, so about the frogs, I need to know more about the frogs.
2: The frogs! Yeah. Um, so I have a certificate in deep listening, um, which uh, required going to a bunch of retreats with a bunch of people who are also sonically minded and um, really focusing on on listening away from the world um, run by Pauline Oliveros, Carol Ione, and Eloise Gold. And I came home to my childhood home after one of these retreats, um, which is a house on a mountain on two and a half acres of forest with a stream in New Jersey. And the first day I was home, I was like, oh, I missed the frogs when I was in New Mexico. And then on the second day, I was like, whoa, I can hear that the shape of the pond changed because it rained and the pond got bigger and I actually heard that the pond was bigger and I was like this would be a really cool sound installation to sort of make something where a curator changes the shape of a pond behind like a speaker curtain and there are these like robots frogs somehow. And so for years, I've just been like, Hey, I have this idea. And people be like, that's such a good idea. I'm like, how do I make robot frogs for really cheap? And then nothing was cheap enough. Um, (laughs) And then the uh, data machine came out, which is a way of um, connecting sort of anything with power to MIDI. Uh, And I bought one on Kickstarter and I was like, I maybe this will be the the impetus I need to, to get these frogs going. And Brian Smith was getting his doctorate in percussion at the time, and he wanted to incorporate using robotics into his final recital. So I was like, here, learn the data machine, how it works, and then help me with these frogs if you want as payment. And then uh, he roped in Rob Cosgrove to help with the programming. And then when we moved uh, during the pandemic, we moved online. And then Nick Huang got involved by uh, making this thing called Colab Hub, which is a really great tool for not having to know anything about the internet and being able to connect any website to a local machine. So basically, um, you don't have to know your IP address. There doesn't It punches through any firewall. It doesn't trigger alarms about firewalls. So we now have a little army of uh, 24 robotic frogs that uh, Brian built, each one is individual. So they all sound different, they're different sizes. um, And they use these harvested DVD motors to spin a little uh, plectrum, and then it hits various materials. And um, on the website, users are able to enter a call um, that is five seconds. So basically from the first hit, we record five seconds. Um, Each frog is represented on the website by a button. And then using artificial intelligence, we evolve that call going around the pond um, by doing some um, machine learning on the aspects of the rhythm that the uh, person enters. So Every evolution of every call is also unique. Oh, and then there's um, an acousmatic binaural listening as well. We have this fake head and their name is Ob and it sits in the center and you can actually rotate that from the website so you can turn the head 270 degrees so that's like you're a real person in the middle of that pond and that is averaging, averaging whatever people right if there's five people trying to control that head it averages so there's sort of this individual and collective uh control over the installation
1: yeah and the idea of collective control brings up the other part of the installation which is you talked about the frogs but there's also this larger theme of climate change and our collective responsibility uh, so could you tell us a bit more about that?
2: Yeah. So frogs, um, amphibians in particular, are at huge risk um, because of climate change, because they are, um, they live in both the land and the water. So if either one is contaminated, they really um, get screwed. They also are very, very um, temperature-dependent on sort of reproduction, and each- species has its time to like be in the pond and grow and then get out and then the next one comes up. And so um, sort of the climate weirding is causing all kinds of problems. Um, and we have actually decided to do a bunch more. So we've started with the frogs. Our next one is going to be bats. Um, and we're just going to keep going, trying to bring attention to sort of the silencing of our natural environment through these installations so the the team works really well together we think the project is really a good one um and so we're writing grants now to to do uh ultrasonic bats
1: yeah hopefully we'll have a whole forest of animals yes
2: <laughs> yes and then at some point we have to do like elephants and it's going to be like ultrasound uh, what's the other one Ultrasonic is high. Infrasonic. Yeah, infrasonic elephants in your gallery. <laughs>
0: um, so, these instruments individually um, are what are, I guess, commonly called nimes in our field. So, the, uh, for our listeners, that's a new interface for musical expression. And you often build nimes to go along with your musical compositions. Um, So what are some advantages that you see to building a completely new instrument to create music with? Uh, Why not just write for the ones we've already got?
2: Yeah. I mean, I I do write music for acoustic instruments and it's something I enjoy, but sometimes there's an idea that requires something, something different. So yeah, the, the frogs. So we're, we're calling it an installation sized instrument. (laughs) Um. And then the, the piece probably that you're leading into, um, the after Apple Box.
1: Yes. So we're going to be playing after Apple Box at New Music for Strings Festival in Denmark. You've done the piece a few years ago when you first wrote it, but could you give us a bit of background on the piece?
2: Yeah. So coming back to uh, Paulina Oliveros, I um, was, and my child at home. This is a little weird. Anyway, uh, I was cleaning out the attic um after my dad died and he had these ammunition boxes and he he was always going to do something with these boxes um and i was like i'm going to take these boxes and my husband and kid are like no you are not going to take these boxes we have enough coming with us you don't need more stuff what are you doing and i'm like no and i was like if i don't do anything with these in a year i will get rid of them but right now I feel like I need to do something with these boxes. And literally as I was carrying them down the stairs from the attic, I was like, oh, this is kind of like Pauline's Apple box orchestra piece where she put contact mics on the Apple boxes and then people could put their own sounding devices on the crates to make a new instrument. And I, it like literally came to me all at once. I was like, oh, and then there was a NIME paper where you could actually know where someone was on a stage by triangulating the sound between two mics that were on the stage, two contact mics. And I was like, if I could figure out where on the box you're hitting and have each person fill, quote unquote, the box with sonic memories of their loved ones, this would be a memorial um, not only for my father, but also Pauline who had recently died as well. And so I literally, I mean, it just came as I was carrying it down the stairs. And uh, this was one of the hardest pieces. I-, I hate when I know exactly what I want <laughs> because then I actually have to do it. When, I- when it's not so clear, it's very easy to like fudge the tech and be like, yes, I'm happy with this, but when you have such a clear, clear idea, um, it ended up I needed more than more than two mics because of the the surfaces. Um, but I didn't want to have to require a multi-channel device, and so um, I'm ending up doing sort of a low-pass filter on a mic and then soldering two mics into the same channel so that we have stereo. Um, did a lot with um, Wekanator and machine learning rather than just like the simple simpler math that the uh, nine paper talked about because the boxes are so inconsistent. So there was that issue and then really struggling to refine the list of um, sonic prompts about, um, about the, the loved one who, is, who has passed. Um, so it took a long, long time to get this where I wanted it to be.
1: Yeah, and we really are like, especially as performers learning how we're building the instrument, because it's different if you're in a different space, if the box is on a different surface, you have to train it wherever you are to get it to recognize the different spots on the box, which was a really interesting process for us as well. And with the theme of the piece as well, I don't know what it is with this instrumentation, but of all the pieces I've played, the most personal ones, the ones that have required us to be the most vulnerable have been with this group. Us being able to put something of ourselves into the piece so concretely was something that was really special.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's something I try to do with every piece is sort of let the performer have a, a bit more agency than maybe in other other pieces. Uh, I think because I was sort of this frustrated composer trapped in a cellist's body. <laughs> <laughs> uh i always try to give more agency to the performers and so it's not every performer that wants it but the ones that do are like yes finally i have control over my destiny um so yeah it's definitely something i do and this this one i think probably is the most open because i i didn't make any of the sounds so it's sort of lovely to to hear the 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 sounds um the the ones that really stick with me are the the sounds that made people laugh or an imitation of that person's laugh those uh those ones i just clearly remember those sonic treats
1: yeah yeah and it kind of invites us as well to think about and remember the people who we've lost and sometimes we may not have done that yet I had recorded sounds about my grandmother and this was not too long after she had died and I hadn't really processed all of that yet, but going through the process of recording sounds of the piece, I had to go back and really think about all my experiences with her. So it was something that was really good for me independent of performing the piece just on a personal level.
2: Yeah, for me too, it was definitely making those sounds about my dad really helped with the grieving process.
0: Sadly, I, I've never gotten a chance to perform this, but I, I did rehearse it um, before I, I got the flu. And then we were supposed to go to Seamus and I couldn't play the piece. And so I, I also recorded um, elements about my grandmother when we were in the rehearsal process and we were training uh, Wekinator for it. But as I was working through the rehearsal process of the piece, I was I was thinking about like how this piece is... It reminded me of something that was... Uh, and I'm throwing out a word with uh, lots of baggage here, but it's it's a post-human work in a way because it asks the machine to do learning and it asks us to expose ourselves. And then there's the you, the composer, also sitting there um, who's given kind of instructions for the structure and flow of the work. And um, I, I thought that was... It's very interesting to me to have a work that kind of exposes how uh kind of as post-human subjects were were connected in this distributive setting um, with technologies and people so still the human is there but um something more as a sum of all of its parts for this kind of very emotional tribute towards uh the uh, the people that we've were remembering through the piece
2: So I'm big on uh, integrated intelligence. So humans are good at some things. Computers are good at other things. Uh, Put them together. Yay, happiness, good shit. Um, And I've been reading this book on like, mushrooms and fungi and um lichen. Lichen are both uh plants and fungi together. Um but it's and they thought it was just two usually but it's like fungi and bacteria and a plant and all these things. So I'm I'm gonna start try I have to figure out how I'm gonna incorporate lichen into um my description of myself as a composer, but that's my (laughs) new inspo is lichen. You heard it here first. <laughs> nice. Breaking <Very> nice. news. <laughs>
0: Speaking of lichen, your artistic work and academic research really, I, I think, deeply engages with environmental justice and political and social justice. We already discussed Rumline for its environmental themes. And you've recently collaborated on a work that two of our members, Rob Cosgrove and Taylor Long, have performed called Housework Lock Her Down which explicitly gestures towards traditional gender roles by hearkening to the labor that women perform at ironing boards. So these social and political themes have been a common recurring subject for all the composers we have worked with and all the individuals we have spoken with on Decipher This. So I wanted to ask you how you see these politics being channeled through your music and research, and how do you see your music and research then impacting our political world?
2: Yeah, um this uh was not my idea this is jocelyn ho and i was sort of brought on as a um ux designer and one was going to be like one of the first people to compose for the system um so it's interesting that you now like think of me as massively political uh (laughs) um trying to think of any of my other works i mean i did something about the 2000 election but usually i don't think of my works as necessarily being that political um and i'm having a like a bit of a crisis you know right now thinking you know i i have project management skills and should i be doing more in the world um, rather than writing music uh so i'm not really answering your question at all
0: no i think that's really interesting too and thank you for giving the shout out to your collaborator Jocelyn here
2: i mean everything everything is is political but uh yeah but i wouldn't say it's much more of a driver in my um personal life in my teaching life um really in in leadership roles um very very aware of um how to get people to participate, who is being left out. um, How can I give away the power that I do have? How can I help people who need to be helped? Um, I'll sometimes get an invitation for something and I'll be like, I don't need this for my resume, but I do know that somebody else does need this. And I'll be like, "Um, you know, are you asking because it's, you want me in particular, or am I fitting a demographic of someone that you need? So very much try to give opportunities to, to other people.
0: Um, do you have anything that's coming up that you would love to let the world know about? Meg?
2: Um, I need to finish no <laughs> that. Yeah. I need to finish this. uh Violin slash percussion concerto. And uh, one of the members of Ensemble Decipher will be uh, the percussionist. So Taylor will be the percussionist in this um, piece called Stepped Reckoner, um, which is a, it started out as a violin concerto with string orchestra and percussion. And then I just really like percussion. <laughs> and so the percussion part grew and grew and now it's kind of a double concerto. Um, and I am doing spectral delay um, over 5.1 sound system. Um, the string orchestra is symmetrically distributed and they all have um, a cartali as well. And then um, I am analyzing the percussion sound to do the spectral delay on the violin. Um, and so some moments will be very, very thin in the electronics. Um, so if um, the violinist is Kate, if Kate plays a run and um, Taylor is just simply bowing one omglocken, only the pitches that are in the omglocken will be then spread to the, to the speakers. But there's gonna be like an accumulator pedal, so it can get thicker and thicker as far as what gets spectrally delayed. Um, and that is the last piece on the album that needs to be recorded everything else needs to be sort of edited and mastered but yes my first solo cd is coming out with parma it's called signal through the flames um and it is terrifying
1: (laughs) (laughs) well we look forward to hearing it however terrifying it may be
2: yeah I, i as i was saying at the beginning i just i don't I don't like recordings of my pieces because um, every performance is different, right? I try to make pieces that live in a moment and then putting them on a recording, just I'm like, no, that's not the piece. The piece is so much bigger than that. But I sort of understand the necessity. Otherwise, how will other people find me and let me write? stuff for them but um i need to get over that i think and just realize that it's an instantiation but it just seems so definitive um and it seems like that's what defines that's a you know double worse of double use of define or definitive but something about it with with the music that i write in particular just makes me deeply unhappy Mm -hmm. (laughs) but buy my cd <laughs>
1: <laughs> well it's one version of the piece and i'm sure it'll be a great version so I should buy meg's cd when it comes out yeah
2: somebody was saying i should make a uh see like a recording that is 12 versions of the same piece and i'm like i re- i actually should <laughs> like honestly because i don't th- i don't think different like some performers realize how big the playground i made for them is and some don't um so hearing somebody else play the piece, hearing somebody play the piece differently, um, I think would give a more full picture of, of that playground.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, great. Thank you, Meg, for coming on the show. Uh, you can find Meg's work at uh, her website, or she's also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and we'll put all those links in.
2: And the, SoundCloud.
1: And SoundCloud. We'll put those links in the uh, episode description.
2: Yay!
1: Um, so yeah great thanks for coming on
2: thanks we would like to express our deepest thanks to joey bohegian for doing as always all editing and production on decipher this